From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Forever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. That was weak, folks. And uh, so you're going to redo it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word and we give thanks because it is in your word that we have the sum of all truth and it's in your light that we see light. And so as we encounter your word this morning, we ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are here listening. Amen. To summarize is to distill something complex into a simple and digestible form. It is an art and can be incredibly helpful. That said, to sum something up can also be incredibly dangerous. Complexity poorly distilled distorts and damages the message that it's trying to represent. In February of 2014, two physicists from the University of Nottingham, their names were Copeland and Padilla, They learned this lesson the hard way. They were attempting to make physics somewhat uh, more street accessible, and so they produced a YouTube video. The video is called this, Astounding, 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5, all the way to infinity, equals negative 1 twelfth. The video was viewed over six million times on YouTube, mostly because it didn't seem to make any sense. If you take all the sum of positive numbers and add them up all the way to infinity, how do you come back to say that it equals a negative fraction? I'll confess to you, it makes my brain hurt. I don't understand it. And many people didn't. But the video created such a stir. Now, this is a stir in the world of physics, okay, friends? Uh, This didn't affect most of your reality. (laughs) This went all the way to the New York Times, where articles were printed about what these physicists were saying. And in the end, they had to print a retraction. Because what came out was that little summary captured in the title, that the sum of all integers added up all the way to infinity equals a negative fraction, it was misleading. There were other assumptions built in and things that go past our understanding, and that this short summary was actually extremely dangerous. 
that it made people think that they couldn't trust that one plus one equals two and some of the most basic things that we know about reality. And so a summary of complex material is extremely dangerous and can be hazardous. But we've seen that Jesus hazards that danger. When he begins speaking about the Christian life, he gives his disciples one simple but all-inclusive command. Follow me. This is where Jesus says the Christian life starts and that the Christian life will not go beyond this either. It is the beginning and the boundary. This command is the center and the circumference of all that is Christian. That to hear the words, follow me, is a comprehensive engagement with Jesus. And this week, as we consider that command, we find ourselves in Matthew 16, where Jesus and Peter are interacting with one another, and Peter is not understanding Jesus. Jesus begins to tell the disciples at this point in Matthew's gospel that he is to go to Jerusalem, that he is to be handed over, he is going to suffer, die, and then be raised. Peter doesn't understand it, so in one of Peter's classic moments, he pulls Jesus off to the side and gives him a bit of instruction. He tells them that this could never be this way, and then Jesus uses the iconic line that most people in American culture are familiar with. Get behind me, Satan. The problem is, is that for most of us, when we hear that, we hear Jesus dismissing Peter until he gets his act together. That he's telling Peter to go away from me. You're a hindrance to me, a stumbling block. Go away until you can get your stuff back together, and then you can come back with me. And friends, I think that's a mistake to understand Jesus' words in that way. Because rather, I think it's an invitation to Peter to get back in line, that we have to understand it along with the words, follow me, that Jesus is summoning and inviting Peter to get back in line, to follow him on the way to the cross and the redemption of the world. So it is invitation, and he's saying Peter is out of line, needs to get back in line, that rather than instructing Jesus, he needs to find his place in following Jesus. And what this incident makes so painfully clear for us is that despite our proximity to Jesus, whether we are with him and have been with him for a long time, or despite our best intentions, you have to remember that Peter didn't have bad intentions for Jesus, or despite our confidence, remember that Peter had just confessed faith in Jesus, that we also get out of line with all of our good intentions, with all of our confidence, with all of our proximity, that we get this wrong. And our concern this morning is to understand exactly how we can struggle with following Jesus. How can we also get out of line and how can we get it wrong? And in our passage, we're going to see three things about how we can get it wrong. First is that we follow the path of our own reason. Before we come in too hard on Peter and pass judgment on him, it's important to remember something of his position. If you turn back with me to Matthew 11 and verse 25, Jesus declares this. He says, I thank you, Father, it's a prayer, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. 
Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And Jesus here is speaking of the disciples, those who have been singled out and chosen for the revelation of the knowledge of God and what he's doing in Jesus. And Peter was a recipient of that. He was in the inner circle of Jesus and traveled with him and heard Jesus' explanations and heard Jesus' teaching in an intensified way. He had received all of that. God had chosen to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom to Peter and to all the disciples. And yet what we see is that they didn't get it. Peter was missing it. Despite all of his privilege, he still didn't fully understand. For him, a crucified Christ was no good. Remember, just up in the passage before this, Peter has confessed faith. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ. You're the anointed deliverer who's coming to bring redemption into the world. But then when Jesus begins to speak of his impending death and of his resurrection... Peter can't understand it. It doesn't match up with his reason, with how he theologically reasoned, how he thought about the world. A crucified Messiah was a useless Messiah. A dead Messiah definitely wasn't going to build an invincible church that Jesus had just spoken of. So it, there was no way that he could understand it. And so Peter pulls him aside, attempts to straighten him out with all of his good of intentions, but he has a faulty perception of the kingdom of God. He doesn't get the ways and the works of God yet. Despite the revelation he's received, there's much that's lacking. And so Jesus' response to him is found here in verse 23. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And friends, isn't it still this way with us today? That yes, we can come in hard on Peter, but don't we sit in the same position where we have our own thoughts and ideas about how God would best work? We have our own natural reason. We have our own understanding. And that if we're honest, a crucified God who goes to victory through a cross doesn't make a great deal of sense to us. But then much else of what Jesus teaches doesn't make a great deal of sense to us. Earlier in this gospel, we've been told that the meek inherit the earth, not the strong. We've been told that Jesus didn't come for the righteous, he came for the unrighteous. We've been told that it's the poor in spirit who it's them that the kingdom of heaven belongs to. Friends, there are all kinds of things that defy our natural reason and what we think is right. All kinds of paradoxes and inverted truths. But this is the way of the kingdom of God. And Peter here is being invited into a transformation of his own knowledge through the revelation that God and God alone can give. And what's important for us is this is part of what it means to follow Jesus. It means to be taught by him. It means to surrender our reason and submit it to the revelation of God. And the ways and works of the kingdom have to come from God. That otherwise we're going to be like Peter. And we're going to be putting our categories onto God saying this is the way that you should work. This is the way that your work will go forward in the world. And we'll be giving him our best advice. 
counseling him. We'll be a good contractor for him. Directing him in the way and we'll completely miss it. And so, friends, we want to be good students, giving ourselves to following Jesus by submitting to the ways and works of God as they're revealed in Scripture. And this is the first way that we see in our passage that we tend to stumble, that we don't get it because we apply our own unaided reason to the ways of God and we sit in judgment on Him. But the second thing that we see here, though, is that we also resist the rigors of daily engagement. If we don't necessarily like the revelation of God and how he shows himself, we also tend to resist the rigors of daily engagement with this God. You see where Jesus goes just after this in verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, it's interesting. There are three verbs here for us. Deny, take up, and follow. In the original, deny and take up are actually in the past tense. And so what that's indicating is that this is a one-time activity that takes place. That we deny and we take up a cross. And this is referring to the moment of conversion. When we see the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ and that Jesus has been sent into the world to die for our sins and rise again and that we be vindicated in him, that we then follow him, that we deny ourselves and take up our cross. But then you find this final verb is actually in the present tense. Deny, take up, and follow me. And what this indicates is that Jesus is inviting us in the present tense to a continuous activity, that we pursue him. And this pursuit is not exhausted by one event. This is not one decision in life. It's not those who commit themselves to full-time ministry. It's not those who come forward for baptism. It's not those who do something sacrificial one time. But this is a present, daily engagement in which we hear the command of Jesus to follow him. That it is the outworking of the one who has denied himself. It is the outworking of the one who has taken up his cross. And friends, we have to feel the weight of that command. That we have a living Lord who sits at God's right hand today. And he speaks by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that that command comes to us each and every day to follow me. And one of the most important aspects of the Christian life is discerning what does that mean for me in this day, in this moment, in this hour. And discerning that. And I'll be honest that in conversations with Christians, especially those who have been Christian for some time, one of the most difficult parts of the Christian life is just dealing with the fatigue of the rigor of the thing. It's just that this is rigorous. That each day we're to discern what does it mean to take up and to deny and to follow and to ask all the questions. And I still remember so strongly when this dawned on me. As a, as a young man, I was just finishing up seminary and we had moved to Memphis, Tennessee to take my first job. Three weeks after moving, uh, we had our first son. And all of a sudden, Melissa and I had gone from uh, our first years of marriage where the most difficult and stressful thing Melissa had to manage was me. 
to we had a son and a full-time job that was demanding, and we were trying to figure out things, and there was all kinds of transition going on. And I remember trying to just get some handholds through all the transitions to understand how do, I, how do I make my way ahead. And then it became really clear in reading a passage like this from one of the other Gospels that God's call on me was to deny, take up, and follow. And to figure that out. And what that meant for me at that moment in my life was when I got home from work, it wasn't time to sit down on the couch with the newspaper or to turn on the news. Rather, it meant to take up this little fat, chunky kid named Sim and to change his diapers and to bathe him and start getting him ready for bed. And as much as I wanted to do something else, I needed to revolt against myself and become a servant. That that was one aspect of what it looked like for me to follow in that season of life. And friends, one of the things that we have to remember is that this is something that we define and then redefine. Because it is this daily call of God to follow after Jesus. And the question for you is, are you defining and redefining it? In all the different days and seasons of your life, at your various different places and your various different vocations, are you asking the question, what does it look like for me to follow? That is what's incumbent upon the disciple of Jesus, and it's what we're also probably most resistant to because it's so demanding. A third and final thing that we see here, though, in our struggles with following after Jesus is that we just tend to pursue our own interest. If you follow in verse 25, Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? I was reading in Calvin's Institutes uh, this week. Interesting, after hundreds of pages of fairly academic theology, he arrives in book three in chapter seven, where he gives a summary. And he says, the sum of the Christian life is self-denial. And all of a sudden, Calvin's pastoral, very practical side comes out. And what he says is this, and I want you to follow it carefully. He says, we deny ourselves because we do not belong to ourselves. We deny ourselves because we belong to God. It's a very simple, practical, high-powered argument. And what he's explaining is that self-denial is not the way of you pulling up your bootstraps and earning your way into God's kingdom. That's not what self-denial is about. It's not about you proving to God that you're worthy. Rather, self-denial is the response of the one who's been intersected by the grace of God and called to follow after him whose sins have been forgiven. It's like Matthew that we saw last week in chapter 9. Matthew was in the tax collector's booth, filled with all of his graft and his greed, an awful human being by every account in the world of the first century, and Jesus is not ashamed of him. Jesus bears his sins and calls him to follow after him to come in his train, and then he will even eat with his friends. That's who you are. That's who I am. 
and the grace of God comes and finds us. But then because we've been bought with such a price by the blood of Jesus, we don't belong to ourselves. And friends, actually to be committed to ourselves is a betrayal of our own self-interest. And so what Jesus says is that the one who who seeks to save his life will lose it. That we're working against our own interest here when we pursue our own self-interest. But the one who loses his life for my sake will find it. But as disciples of Jesus, what we so often buy into is the promise of what the world puts in front of us. Remember what Jesus says next, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And we do look to the world. We look to the world for meaning. We look to it for pleasure. We look to it to satisfy our restless cravings. And what Jesus is saying is that that is the opposite of self-denial. That we live in self-denial because we belong to God. And that requires two things of us. The first is that it requires us to submit. And the second is that it requires us to rebel. It requires that we submit to another, relinquishing control of our lives. Perhaps the best encapsulation of what it means to deny yourself is the prayer that Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 26, verse 39. Not my will, but yours. Friends, self-denial is not just practice in some ascetic-type disciplines. Self-denial is the submission of the self to one who is greater than you. And this is what Jesus demonstrates for us. And so we're to submit But then the flip side of that is that we must rebel against ourselves. We must mutiny because we all have minds that reason and we all have self-interest that pull us in different directions and we have to live in self-renunciation. We must tell ourselves that our own selfish interest, no matter how much they pull us and no matter how much sense it makes, that that's not in our best interest. This is what Jesus would convince us of. That the paradox here is that life is found in following him. And that we don't save our life to have a meaningful life today. And we don't save our life to participate in the world to come by living for our own interest. We do so by following after Jesus. Friends, when we consider the weight of all that, when we look at our self-interest when we look at the rigors of daily engagement, when we look at the ways that we can get it so profoundly wrong, our capacity to simply misunderstand the gospel. What has to happen is we have to see the Jesus who's patiently bearing with his disciples. And this is one of the most remarkable things in the midst of all of Peter's blunder. You'll notice a very important word in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. And this is the nature of our gracious Savior. He began to show them. Though they had received the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven in so many ways, they didn't get it. But he was gracious just to begin with them. See, he doesn't just dismiss Peter. He calls him to get back in line and follow. 
And that's his summons and his invitation to you today as well. In all the ways that you don't get it, in all the ways which you resist him, in all the ways in which you pursue your own interest, he calls you back. And he will continue to reveal himself. He'll continue to draw you along. Because then look what he does next with the disciples. He takes Peter specifically along with two others up on a high mountain. And he reveals himself to them. Because yes, Peter could not get his mind around the fact that a crucified Savior would be the king of the world who would rule over all things. And what happens in this very strange moment called the transfiguration is that Peter and the other disciples see Jesus full of glory, that his sufferings would not undo him, that he would conquer over them, that there was something on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death, that Jesus would pass through it and reign glorious over it. And Jesus is progressively revealing himself to these disciples. And so he's doing with you continuing to work with you with all of our half-heartedness, with all of our failures, with all of our faithlessness, with all of our struggles and with all of our good intentions and all of our desires. He binds us up, holds us together in his grace and continues to journey with us. And he summons us to follow him. This is the center of everything he says. It's the circumference. It's the beginning place and it's the boundary. And hear him graciously invite you into his train as he leads you into what is truly life. Let's look to him for that. Trust him with that and all the paradoxes that are bound together in following after Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge all the ways that we misunderstand the ways and the works of your kingdom, that we get it wrong, and that we don't always daily want to engage with the rigor of it and what it means to follow after Jesus. And that we are often prone to follow after our own interest and we betray ourselves. And So teach us what it is to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow after you. Help us where we're weak. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.